Data in Context, Opportunities and Challenges in the Post-Big Data Era. Hello, this is Ron Powell, and you're listening to Fast Forward on the World Transformed. This program presents conversations with thought leaders who are shaping our future through new ideas and new technologies. In this edition of Fast Forward, Jake Freevolt, Vice President of Product Marketing at Information Builders, talks with us about how rethinking data integration can open up new possibilities for data analysis. As the buzz surrounding big data recedes, organizations find they still face significant challenges when it comes to deriving business value from their data. More than ever, businesses need a clear understanding that comes from exploring the deep relationships that exist in their full data sets. But how can they achieve that? What lies beyond the big data hype? Let's explore. The future begins right now. Liptitia friends, and welcome to the World Transform. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, a future that will be here sooner than you think. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and I'm pleased to introduce our very special guest for today's program, Jake Prevald. Jake is the Vice President of Product Marketing for Information Builders, a data and analytics company based in New York City. He uses his 20-plus years of technical and marketing experience to write, blog, and present about data management, big data analytics, digital information, and other topics that highlight the tight connection between business and data. Jake Freevald, welcome to Fast Forward on the World Transformed. Thanks very much, Phil. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So let's talk a little bit about the excitement around big data. And as Ron mentioned in his intro, that has died down a bit, hasn't it? It sure has. It's, yeah, it's been, uh, it used to be the only thing, and now it's uh, not talked about nearly as much. Yeah, it's, it's been four years, actually. I, I was surprised when I looked this up and counted. Four years since Gartner dropped big data from the annual hype cycle. So now we've got a little bit of hindsight. This is something that people have been aware of for a while. And with that advantage of hindsight, how did Hadoop in particular and big data in general fail to live up to the hype? Well, first, did they fail to live up to the hype, and, and if so, how? Well, it's funny. The uh, The title of the podcast has in a post-big data world in it. So in some ways, it must have failed because we're kind of beyond it. But at yeah. the same time, with uh, as with many things where we are dealing with a technology that, that seems to not have lived up to its expectations, we still have a great deal of learning that's been done from it. And it's still all over the place. You still see people with Hadoop in, in place, and you still see it out there in the industry. So I think the big change, the biggest changes come about from the mindset. It used to be that you know, you'd see somebody who, uh, an executive who read about big data in Forbes, and it was going to change the uh, the way they approached the entire market and industry. It was going to change their entire company. They thought it was going to tell them everything they needed to know about their customers. And um, then when they tried to actually do it, they, they found that it wasn't really capable of doing the things that they thought it was going to do. They were engaged in magical thinking and thought that this, this Hadoop thing was going to change the world for them. I think the part that failed is that we saw people putting all of their data into Hadoop without really thinking about why they were doing it or 
how they were going to manage that data in Hadoop or thinking about what the application was. There was a sense that data is really important, and the more data we get, the better off we are, and let's just put it somewhere. There's a term, I first heard Sean Rogers use it, if you know him, uh, he called it Hadumping, where it was, you're just taking all the data you've got and just dumping it into Hadoop. And, and that as a strategy definitely did fail, which means that people pulled back a little bit, tried to understand better what they should be doing, and, and that's really the part that failed, I think. You know, it's amazing when, you, when I hear you describe that, that arc of what happened with the, with the expectations is so typical. This is not a story that we've not heard before. To no, not at all. Double negatives. You know, this, is, this happens with technologies. There's sky-high expectations. The technology comes along. People don't know exactly what to do with it, or they expect it to do things that it could never have possibly done, right, that magical thinking you were, you were describing. And pretty soon people are saying, oh, this was overhyped. Or maybe they were just not doing what they should have been doing with it. So well, and that's a hard thing, right? Because if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing with it, then it's hard to set up goals and set realistic expectations. So I think that exploratory phase of it is fairly natural, but it also leads to some pretty big, if not failures, then at least inability to have a, uh, have a realistic set of expectations for something. Right. So when you get a, beyond the, all the hype and not meeting the expectations, uh, what did we get right by putting big data solutions in place, Jake? Well, I think that when we started off looking at big data as a place to put a bunch of stuff, the reason for that is that we wanted to collect data, and we knew that data was valuable. And so we didn't want to take the time that it always took to try to uh, rationalize that data and put it into a data warehouse or rationalize that data further from the warehouse and put it into a data mart. Like that's, that's difficult to do, and I, I think that is something that was a, was a quite reasonable response. That was, it's reasonable to look at that process of building a data warehouse or changing, even worse, maintaining a data warehouse and say, you know, that's, that's complicated and and difficult enough that I, I really don't want to do that. I want to just put stuff in a spot where my, my data scientists can go and dig through the data and find those golden nuggets that are going to, to save my company or transform my company. So they did make a mistake with respect to how they were using it, but there was wisdom in that mistake. And the wisdom was, let's capture as much data as we can because at some point we're going to find a way to make it useful. I'll tell you what, Jake, if you write a book about big data, you should call it Wisdom in the Mistake. I think that is a... <laughs> That, that is a beautiful image. Uh, that, that, it probably really applies to a lot of other areas of our lives too, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a, that's a trademarkable title. You should do something with that. So we, we got all the data together. That was a good move. Yet we still have this sense that businesses are spinning their wheels, right? So why is that? Well, I think part of it is that we're facing the same issues that we have always faced. For my entire career, we've been asking the same questions. How do I get people to walk into a boardroom and have the same answers to various business questions? How do I create an environment where everybody's going to get the right information at the right time? Uh, how are we going to find out who our customer is and what those customers are doing? How do I get that information in a clear and consistent way? Those are all still a problem. Those are things that are not answered by dumping data into Hadoop. So I think that's our big issue, figuring out what the company looks like and getting that kind of consistency. And I think there are really three things that we can talk about that are related to those problems. And, and one of them is that we spend a huge amount of time 
waste a huge amount of time mapping one set of rows and columns to another. Nature is not row and column based, but our applications are. And every time we make a single tweak to a single application, we change the way that we map the rows and columns from that application into our data warehouse. And then that ripples down into one or more data marts. So little changes in remote applications can have a big effect on what you're seeing in analytics. So that mapping of rows and columns to each other is, is one major issue. Another is that we really have a problem with the, our, and still do, this has been going on for a very long time, we really have a problem with connecting our business people and our technical people. When I say what is a customer, the business person has this vague but fairly understandable idea of what that means, and the technical person has taken the idea of customer and shattered it into a thousand tables, all of which are held in some massive ER diagram that's going to be properly governed and all that kind of good stuff. And business people see what technical people do and say, There's, like, that doesn't mean anything to me, and they can't relate to it. And they actually see it as getting in the way of their business problems. Remember that in the big data era, we would dump data in so that some business analyst could go and explore that data and find the golden nugget. Well, you can't explore it if it's got to be shattered into a thousand pieces and reassembled first. So I think that's another problem. And then the third one is that we lose a lot of value when we constantly shift context in these kind of complicated projects. If I'm getting information from one of my old legacy systems and I'm getting information out of a couple of cloud-based systems and so on, I'm probably doing that using a variety of tools. I'm getting some information that's pre-filtered by the business unit that it's coming from. I'm getting data that has, in other words, some kinds of rules built into it that I'm not necessarily privy to, and then I'm trying to assemble that in a completely different context. So what that does is it diffuses the responsibility for understanding the context among a whole bunch of different people. And you can't do that and expect to have the value still be the same. If, if you don't know how this information is being handled and what it really means in its business context, then you can't expect to have value that derives from business context be a part of that. So these are, these are a couple of the things that are our core questions for how we deal with data that we have learned things about from the big data era but that are not necessarily yet fully understood by people. So Jake, you've really presented the three core questions. Let's, let's go back to the first one, mapping one set of rows and columns to another. Uh, it sounds like you're really getting at the major and fundamental issue and really the big challenge of, for data integration. Is that correct? I think it's one of the most important ones, yes. And if you look at what we did in the big data era, you'd hear technicians talk about things like schema on read. And schema on read is really cool. All it means is that the data gets moved over into Hadoop, and you decide what to do with the data, how to understand the data when you need it. That's actually pretty cool. If your definition of customer changes, then you don't necessarily need to change everything downstream. You capture what the customer means according to that application. You put it into Hadoop, and you can reinterpret the data as necessary in downstream processes. That's good. And it depends on things like JSON files and XML as opposed to things like the old rows and columns kind of databases that we once had. So in that sense, there is something good about putting things into big data stores and these kinds of data types because it's very, it's very helpful to be able to have something so flexible to be able to interpret it. 
But the problem with it is that it suddenly became very sloppy. It became something where we used to have too much discipline. We used to really try to govern everything perfectly so we got the, wor- the, the perfect model that's going to go into your data warehouse. And instead, we have no real governance. We just put it in there and we became very sloppy. The, the habit is a, is a real issue there. So what did we learn from it? We learned things that we can capture information, like I said, about customer and just get me all the information that you've got and bring it in. And that information is not going to change instantly, but it will change over time. And we will be able to map the changes into whatever kind of governance we need to. If we're doing, for example, master data management or data warehousing or something along those lines, then we can capture the data at the time that it's generated so that it's still within that original context and then map it into whatever changes we need to do uh, to apply to it, whether it's cleansing rules or integration rules or whatever it may be. So having that kind of flexibility is probably one of the most important things that we learned from big data successes. And the fact that you can't do it without discipline is one of the things that we learned from the big data failures. So looking at that second question, I I liked what you said there about how the business people might have an idea of what a customer is, right? But that idea of what a customer is and the technical definition that the technology people have, those are going to be so different that it's very hard for the business person to see what they're looking for in the data as that's broken about. So you've got this long-standing issue. It's like I know a customer when I see one, right? I have right. An, intu- an intuitive idea about that and, and an intuitive idea about a lot of things that go on inside the business, which from the technical standpoint, these are all defined by values, right? They're all defined by numbers and, and values that get, that get stuck in the field. So we've got that, we've got that long-standing, probably the original problem of putting systems into business, right? This, is, this, is, this has been with us forever. And lo and behold, big data didn't magically solve it. But maybe it has shown us a way. Maybe it has uh, made some things better. Let's talk about that a little bit. You're right to say that it's always been there. This is, this is not news. When we first captured the first transactions on the first computers, we had this problem when we were trying to transform data into some kind of further knowledge. It was really good at process management, but wasn't so good at helping us understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and that hasn't changed very much. And business people do have a hard time understanding that. They know that the data is out there. They know that you know, if they go to Google, they'll be able to call up a ton of documents that show them exactly what they want on any particular topic, and they don't understand why they can't have that same capability delivered to them, that same data delivered to them when they ask business questions. So that's not a new problem either. Different answers to the same question in a, in a board meeting is not a new question. So right. those all remain open issues for us. I think what you described about talking about a customer and having the, the uh, I know it when I'll see it kind of mentality is a, is a really important one when we try to apply some kind of governance to big data or to, for that matter, any other data. Because we all know what happens, whether we're on the business side or the IT side, we, we've all seen this happen where the business says, this is what I need, and IT goes away and comes back three months or six months or a year later and says, here you go, and the business says, that's what I asked for, but it's not what I wanted, or that's what I asked for, but it's overcome by events at this point, it's, it's too little too late. And so being able to look at this data, being able to get this data in quickly and talk about it in terms of business subjects rather than in terms of rows and columns, talking about in terms of the, the nouns that we use in the, sen- the business sentences we say becomes really much more important than the individual rows and columns and structures and so on that we're using. So part of the issue here is relating the business subjects 
to the data in a way that is understandable. Business people can kind of get what's going on. They can work on their intuition and refine their intuition rather than having to say what their intuition is up front. So they don't have to define customer. They tell IT, this is what I want. IT comes back and says, here's what I got. And it happens very quickly that they say, oh, it's not quite what I asked for, but it's similar. I need a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. And now we refine what customer looks like. And, and here's another interesting thing that happens. You start to realize that English is sloppy. Any language is sloppy. So when a business person says, I want to know about customer, well, one business person says customer to me means individual user. Another person says it's the individual site that where customers are using my technology, let's say. And other people say it's, it's a logo. It's a particular company. And those are identified by the logos that, that I've got. Those are all different definitions of customer. So there's an intuition, but it's different. All of that data that we've captured contains information that would help us talk about those three totally different definitions of customer. And so if we can organize the data in such a way that I can split it out afterwards, like right now I capture it in one way, but I'm going to split it out with giving each person his or her own definition of customer, then that helps us create systems that give people what they need without having them try to agree on what customer is, because that will never happen. So there's a, a tremendous amount of value there in the data. It's a matter of organizing the data in a way that we can unlock it for each individual business unit or even person. So that really brings us to the million-dollar question of how much value is being lost due to shifting data context, and what can we do about it? Well, so I think you've hit an important point, which is the context, right? The context is one of the most important things that we can talk about with respect to our businesses. I'm going to talk about healthcare for a minute because everybody understands healthcare. We're all at least consumers, if not also providers or payers of, of healthcare. When you have a hospital, you've got somebody who is responsible for the overall medical governance, if you will, of the hospital, the chief medical officer. That person might be really interested in how we are doing from a, an outcomes perspective. You have a person called the chief quality officer who is responsible for specifically adverse events. They want to know about adverse events. And you've got a chief operations officer. That's someone who's more concerned about you know, is, are the staffing levels right and all that kind of stuff. So each of them might have different kinds of systems that are supposed to help them run their processes. The uh, chief operations officer would have a system that helps them understand staffing levels, for example. And they're going to say things about their business like, uh, you, you know, the number of patients in the beds at that facility was such and such a level and they were served by so many physicians and nurses. And I emphasize the nouns in that sentence because the chief quality officer who's responsible for adverse events is going to say the quality events that we had were related to the following patients, the following kinds of patients, in the following facilities, in the following rooms, right, because some adverse effects are, are based on things like infections and things like that that you might acquire in a hospital, and they were treated by the following physicians and nurses. Same subjects, right, same exact subjects but different connections between them. And the chief medical officer is going to have something similar, saying, hey, the outcomes for these patients were based on the kinds of tests that were being done or the kinds of procedures that were being run in these facilities by these physicians on these patients. So they're all using the same terms. And the issue is context. They want to see those different terms in their own context. So again, if we can capture as much data as possible in the context 
that these people are doing their jobs in, the staff support levels for the, for the chief operations officer and the EMRs or electronic uh, medical records or electronic health records for the CMO, for example, if you can capture that data as it's being used in their business processes and bring them together, even though they've got different definitions of what's going on and different, different use cases for how those applications would be used, then I can, I can start to reconcile those in a way that will give each of them even though they've got different ideas and different concerns about what's going on, give them information about what's happening within those organizations, within their part of the organization, in a way that's going to be consistent with each other. So different definitions potentially, different use cases definitely, different systems absolutely, but in the end, the data can show a reflection of what they need to know to each other and have it be reconciled. And that's something that's really difficult to do with traditional things like data warehouses. That takes a more subject-oriented and context-focused kind of approach rather than the old-fashioned row-and-column data, uh, data warehouse kind of a model. Jack, I wonder if there's an analogy here to machine learning. Just as, as you were talking about both the disconnect between business people and, and the technology side of the, uh, of the house, and then also talking about this different ways of looking at things depending on where you are in context. I, I was thinking about big data as it relates to these huge data sets that they use to train machine learning algorithms, right? This idea that we've now got computer systems that can solve problems that it used to be just the purview of human beings to solve, right? That suddenly we've got these systems that can sort of think like people, and what enabled that was that they were able to train on these really large sets of data. Of course, there's algorithms and other things that are factoring into it as well, but that made, that, that's kind of what enabled that ultimately, is that we had those big data sets to work with. Is sure. it fair to say that big data in the organization did something similar in, in driving us in a slightly more human direction in, in how we understand our business? Well, it's an interesting question because the data sources that are really important for AI may well be in a big data store, and uh, certainly we've seen that as one of the major use cases for uh, big data. It's also a, a key use case for cloud. A reason to use cloud is because you need to have surge potential where you've got a bunch of data and you need to store it somewhere, and you've got AI algorithms that need a space to run, but it's going to be temporary as you find it answers to questions. So there's definitely a connection between AI, big data, and cloud. I think that to your point about humanizing it, we have a very interesting and curious situation right now where we need to understand why the AI bots or algorithms or whatever you want to talk about, uh, if it's machine learning, why the machine was making the decisions it was making. And you can't do that very well in an ungoverned environment. You need some kind of transparency into the algorithms that are being run. You need to understand something about how the machine is learning what, 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 what it's learning. And to do that, you have to understand the data that it's being fed. So that leads to a number of interesting questions. There's actually a ton of interesting questions. We could spend all day just on this topic. But it leads to specific I issues around things like how we relate the master data that we have to the big data that we have that the AI algorithms and machine learning are, are being fed. Let me be more explicit about that. When we talk about master data management, all we need to know is it's kind of at the level, at this level, we need to just understand that those are the nouns in the business sentences I was just talking about, mm -hmm. right? So physician, hospital, facility, uh, whatever, patient. Master data relates those business subjects to each other in specific ways. 
big data typically does not have master data in it per se. So if you apply a machine learning algorithm to uh, a big pile of data, then it's not within that governed context necessarily. So what we really need to do is relate the master data that we have about physician and so on and, and facility, et cetera, to that big pile of data. And if you can do that, you can start to see massive improvements in the outcomes that you get from machine learning. So for example, uh, one of the more frightening case studies with machine learning right now is that we're going to use AI to do all of our job interviews. And uh, because there is a machine asking the questions and taking the answers, uh, there will be no bias and we won't have to worry about gender or race bias or anything like right. that. Right. And that's a, an incredibly big problem because the algorithms were designed by people, and the data sets that we have to work off of were built by people as they did their job that the AI is now going to take over in theory. So if there's an intrinsic bias for racial disparity or gender disparity or something like that, if there's an intrinsic bias already in place in the previous data set, then how are you going to know that it isn't also being carried over into the new machine learning process? And one of the ways that you can do that is by having master data. If you understand who these people are, you understand what their demographics are, then you can start to look at the data results, pardon me, the results that you're getting back. You can look at the data sets that you're dealing with, and you can take a look at how they're being aggregated. You can check and see if, there's, if there are biases occurring. You, if you don't have that information, if you don't have that mastered information that to apply to the big data set, then you can't tease out necessarily what all of the possible demographic effects could be. Uh, that's one example, and there are many more, but, but the idea is that you want to make sure that you've got all of the data that you have that's still useful for people to go in and do this kind of exploratory analysis on, but ideally you want that data to be governed by the master data. You won't necessarily master the data that's in Hadoop, or you won't necessarily master big data itself, but you want to have the information about the data to be mastered. You want, the, you want the subjects to be related to something that's governed so you can tease out the different parts of it as you try to move forward with it. Right. So really interesting challenges, really interesting capabilities that are coming into play. But I think as I look over what we've been talking about here, we talk about better mapping of one set of rows and columns to another set of rows and columns. We get, we get better at solving that age-old disconnect between the, the business and the, and the technology, and we start really making these efforts to put data in context. Maybe this uh, post-big data world isn't so bad after all, right? So w w what can we expect to happen next? Well, it's not bad at all. Uh, so a couple of anecdotes to express where I think we are and where I think we're going. First of all, with my father, who was, uh, he's retired now, but he did programming work and was a data scientist before they called it that, if you will, back in the 70s when computing was really a big deal. Back at the time, having a computer meant that you were getting specialists, they were highly paid, they were more mathematicians than they were business people, which is the way that we describe big data now. So big data back then was basically anything that was in a computer. And ordinary data was in a file cabinet, and your interface to the data was a gal named Phyllis, and you'd say, Phyllis, go grab me the Warnock file, and she'd go over and find it and bring it back to you, and that's how you accessed your data, right? So there was your data, which was not in a computer, and big data, which was in a computer. I think we're in the same situation right now with respect to big data. There's a lot of data out there that we've started to come to understand how to manage. It's taken some time. It's going to continue to take some time. It's going to continue to take some resources and specialized skill sets, but we are starting to incorporate those 
into our everyday set of skills. And although it's becoming more complicated over time, there are things that are smoothing out even as we start to uh, adapt to that changing world. So we talk about a post-big data world. It's not too different from the world where computers were first up and coming. And we certainly wouldn't want to live without computers. So we certainly don't want to live without big data and the stuff that we've lived from, uh, learned from big data. A second anecdote, and, and this one's kind of funny. My wife and my mother have the same name. Hmm. Um, it's very complicated. When I text, I've got to make sure I don't email or text people the wrong thing. <laughs> that could get but very dangerous, yes. It could be a problem. But for a company that is trying to organize its data appropriately, master its data, whatever it is, it, it can be an even bigger challenge. And, hmm. and um, my wife's email address ended up on my mother's credit card account. And, you know, I don't want either one of them knowing anything about either of their financial circumstances, frankly. It's all good. Just keep it separate. It's much better that way for everybody, right. especially me. If, if we could back up the truck and say, you know, clearly it's a bad merge somewhere. Maybe some algorithm decided that Sue and Susan were the same person and decided to put them together. That's fine. I get it. But it was a bad merge, clearly. If we could back up the truck to that point and before that merge happened, put in a rule saying these two are separate and they're the twain shall meet and then rerun history, then it would be fine. But there's a lot of stuff that happens when you merge two accounts. You start to see the lifetime value of a customer change or you start to see the kinds of offers that are being given change. You start to see the potentially credit scores and things like that can be affected. So to try to tease out what happens can be a, a really significant problem. So a large part of what we need to do, or a significant part of what we need to do, is be able to capture all of the history, the entirety of everything we've done. That's some pretty big data. But the entirety of everything that we've done with our various accounts, whatever the business subjects is that we talk about, we need to be able to do that so that I can, in fact, back up the truck, insert the rule that says don't ever let these two things merge, these two records merge again, and then move forward as if they had never been merged in the first place. That's a, that's a key focus of a place where we've put in uh, investment in our technology, and I think it's a, a critically important thing to have happen in this era when we've got so much data out there all floating around. And then maybe one final thing, as we look at, uh, at the way that we consider data to be helping us looking forward, we've collected huge piles of data um, think about a, an organization that uh, manages sales across the world or across North America. We'll keep it simple and just say North America. U.S. and Canada, we'll say. Just keep it really simple. Two countries, multiple regions in each country, and last year it was six regions, and this year you want to drop it down to three. Well, how do you decide who has to have which sales quotas for those three regions if you don't have the historical data and the information that you need to be able to go back and look at it and say, show me what things would have been like if we had only had three regions this year. They're going to be very complicated to try to decide how people should have their quotas assigned. Whereas if you are able to say, okay, this is what the, three, the six regions are now. Break it down into three regions and rerun history so I see what everybody's bonus plans would have looked like and I see what everybody's commissions would have looked like. I can see all that, that new structure. Now I can actually make a decision saying, okay, well, the people who are in these areas probably aren't going to change too much, but their behavior will change and the way it rolls up will change, and now I have an understanding of what that looks like. I can actually see what last year would have looked like, which means I can start to plan better for what the future will look like. So those are some ideas on, on where data is changing and how we're going to be 
looking forward with the new capabilities we have to capture every single thing that we do and understand it better in its own particular context. So Jake, it really sounds like there is some real great opportunities in this post-big data era. And uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. That's great. Thank you, Ron. And thank you, Phil. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of Fast Forward on the World Transformed. My thanks to Ron Powell and our special thanks once again to Jake Freevold for being with us today. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore a future that is unfolding before us in unexpected ways and at a breathtaking pace. And until next time, live to see it. To learn more about Information Builders, go to informationbuilders.com. To learn more about this program, visit worldtransform.com. Thanks for listening.